a married couple had recently had a quarrel and ended up giving each other the silent treatment. Two days into their mute argument, the man realized that he needed his wife's help the next morning as he would be needing her to wake, needing him to, her to wake him up around 5 a.m. for an early morning business flight. But not wanting to be the first to break the silence and essentially admit defeat, he wrote on a slip of paper, Honey, please wake me up at 5 a.m., and he left her where he knew she would find it. The next morning, the man woke up only to discover his wife was already out of bed, and he looked at the clock on the nightstand, 9 a.m. His flight had long since departed. He was about to search for his wife and demand an answer for why she didn't wake him up when he noticed a piece of paper on the bed, and it read, It's 5 a.m., wake up. Have any of you ever felt like God was giving you the silent treatment? I'd like to explore the silent treatment of God this morning, if you'll allow me to, by looking at this odd little story about an anonymous woman who comes to Jesus begging for her daughter to be healed, only for Matthew to tell us Jesus did not answer her a word. Not a word. Instead of instinctively helping her, like we've seen Jesus do with several other people, whether indiscriminately among the masses, or how about more specifically with a homeless guy living in a cemetery who possessed a legion of demons. So not just one demon, but several, if not thousands of demons that Jesus easily dispatched into a herd of pigs. But for this woman, whose kid is afflicted with a single demon, who has the decency to not callously mob Jesus looking for a handout like everybody else, but instead approaches with reverence and respect, calling him Lord, Son of David. For this woman, in response to her, Jesus has nothing to say. He stonewalls her, gives her no reply, not even a word, It doesn't even appear that that he wants to give her the common courtesy of the time of day. He ignores her. He sidesteps her, avoids her. His heart beats for moments like these, yet he deliberately evades her. Talk to the hand. I don't have time for this. The silent treatment. And the burning question is, why? In 1961, after C.S. Lewis lost the love of his life, Helen, to cancer, he collected his thoughts in a series of little monographs that he later published under a pseudonym, N.W. Clark. He didn't want others to know that these were his extremely candid thoughts as he opened up about his anger and bewilderment that he felt towards God after her death. It was later republished as a grief observed. And early on, Lewis writes this, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, and so happy that you have no sense needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that... 
silence. You may as well turn away. And the longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? I guess this woman is not the only one confused by the silent treatment of God. Maybe you are this morning. During this Lenten season, we have been exploring what it means to wrestle with God, and I refer to it as a crucible. A crucible is a melting pot, a place where precious metals go to be melted down and purged and bonded and formed into something much more precious. And to enter into the chambers of the crucible is like entering into the ring with God and sparring with him. And this morning, I'd like to speak to another dimension of that crucible, another arena where we wrestle with God. The crucible of silence. The great 20th century preacher that no one's ever heard of is named Helmut Thielich. And he calls the silence of God the greatest test of our faith. And it's in this test and this crucible, this this cross really, where two competing and conflicting ideas intersect. That on the one hand, God is good and God is my friend and he listens and he speaks to me. But on the other hand, God wants to fight me and he is my enemy. And sometimes he slams the doors of heaven in my face and he never speaks. But the both of these are true at the same time. And sometimes we have to reconcile them both. This, my friends, is the crucible of silence. What do we do when God is silent? Have you been there? Maybe you're there right now. My heart breaks for this woman this morning as she throws herself at the feet of Jesus. The deck is stacked against her, my friends. For one, she's a woman. And in that culture and in that time, women weren't allowed to approach a rabbi, let alone speak to them. It was a man's world, and she has no business being there. But on top of that, she's a Gentile. But not just any Gentile. Matthew narrows it down for us and says that she's a Canaanite. You may recognize the Canaanites as the bad guys from much of the Old Testament, most notably in Joshua, when he and the children of Israel were instructed by God to not intermarry with them, but instead wipe them out, all of them. So all to say the Canaanites and the Israelites were these ancient enemies and they didn't get along, and this rivalry lingered even into Jesus' day. So this woman's on the wrong team this morning, so to speak. But she doesn't seem to care about the bad blood between their ancestors. This woman isn't deterred. And despite everything stacked against her, she hears word that Jesus of Nazareth is nearby and she does not hesitate to approach him, else risking her once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to plead her case. And in the theater of public shaming and in front of the opposing team's bench, she steps into the spotlight to upstage everybody for her chance to dialogue with the main character. She cries out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. No one in Matthew's gospel, aside from the opening genealogy, has addressed Jesus as the son of David. No one in all of Israel has recognized Jesus as the heir apparent, the root of Jesse, yet from the lips of this outsider, this Canaanite, this enemy, we hear Jesus coronated as king. 
what this foreigner is doing is extraordinary. I think to put it in perspective, it'd be like if a Cincinnati Bengals fan approached two-time Super Bowl champion, two-time MVP, Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes on the street and started giving him praise and accolades and said that he's the best quarterback in the NFL. Not that they're wrong, by the way. But despite having a near airtight theology, despite her accurate understanding of scripture, Jesus does not answer her a word. She finally gets the nerve to come and approach him, and what does she get? She gets silence. Not a word. Jesus ignores her pleas of this desperate single mother, and I, the way that I read it, Jesus can hear her, but he's making a deliberate effort to turn the deaf ear. If we were honest this morning, we don't like that, Jesus. Are we allowed to say that? Theologian Terry Brashear says, if you're comfortable with what you know about Jesus, don't read the Bible. <laughs> I love that quote. The silence of Jesus in this story makes it one of the most difficult to read and comprehend in all the Gospels, which is probably why we don't talk about it very much. And let's be frank, we don't like Jesus giving someone the cold shoulder. It seems completely out of character for Jesus, or at least the Jesus that we think we know, because, I mean, why doesn't he care? What would Jesus do? WWJD? Jesus would help this woman, right? He'd care. But in this particular instance, he doesn't, and I don't know why. Perhaps our frustration with this story is exacerbated because we all know too well what this woman is experiencing this morning. We know what it feels like for Jesus to give us the silent treatment. When we come to God, when we pray, when we often hear nothing back from God except the uneasy eeriness of nothingness. We click the button on our walkie-talkie and we say something to God and when we take our finger off the button, all we hear is static. When we diligently read our Bibles like we're supposed to, all we hear are crickets. We read and reread stories of God speaking to people like Adam and Eve and Abraham and Moses and Samuel and Job and Isaiah and Ezekiel, the Apostle Paul. And we want to believe that God is still capable of that nowadays, but we're losing hope. Why doesn't God want to do that with me? Maybe your spiritual life right now, or maybe even the majority of the time, is a drought of God speaking in your life. And when you look around at other people, you grow jealous because God appears to be a chatty Cathy with most folks, yet he's stubbornly shy with you, particularly right now when you need him most. And you're growing concerned that he just doesn't want to talk to you. He's apparently got nothing to say to you when you believe he's got a lot of explaining to do, and while you never would voice it aloud, out of your fear of being labeled a bad Christian, you often feel like God is shunning you, and you're beginning to wonder if there's something wrong with you. One of the most common things people ask me is, why can't I hear God? Why is God not talking to me? I go and visit people as they lie in that hospital bed, digesting the diagnosis and prognosis that they didn't want to hear. Why doesn't God have something to say right now, Pastor? I just want to hear something's going to, I just want to hear everything's going to be okay. 
as they restlessly sit in the waiting room, paralyzed by a combination of fear and lack of control. Where's my word from the Lord, Pastor? You'd think God would chime in right about now with a little word of encouragement. Is that too much to ask of God? As I sit alone in the nursing home, wondering why my BFF friend Jesus isn't making house calls anymore like he used to, I thought he was my friend, Pastor. As they see the world seemingly falling apart around us, as it feels like more and more people are turning away from God, as it feels like the church is shrinking, as it feels like God's enemies are gaining a foothold in this world, why doesn't God speak up and rebuke the naysayers? Why can't God say something and fight for himself? Because I'm getting tired of speaking on his behalf because I feel like I'm wasting my breath. Often folks ask me to pray, believing that since I'm a pastor, God automatically will speak to me, meanwhile, never realizing that I'm often in the same boat with them. People assume that God is always talking to pastors, and that's not true. It's a little trade seeker we don't often like to disclose, because sometimes, oftentimes, preachers are also getting the silent treatment of God as well. And we're asking the same questions as the rest of y'all, and we're just as confused and irritated. Most people can't stand the uncertainty of God's silence, and so they eject in one of two ways. The first is to start talking. And like Job's friends, they can't bear the unease, so they start filling the void of noise and often transform into armchair theologians, making up answers and even speaking as if God can't speak for himself. But the crucible of silence isn't an intellectual problem, and it's a heart problem You can't solve a heart problem with a head answer, and so you can throw your theology at it all day, but it ain't going to fix anything. Not enough Christianese and church lingo can fill the void of God's silence. No matter how hard you try or you scream, all it ends up being is religious chatter and noise. But the other response is to leave. They bail out. God pushes them, and they stand up and they say, I know, you know what? I don't have to take this. I'm a human being, and I deserve better than this. I'm an American, and you will treat me with dignity that I deserve, and they just walk away. That's the way you're going to be. You don't deserve me. Your loss, and they leave. I can find relief elsewhere, and it usually doesn't require as much from me. I don't have to put up with this. The remarkable thing about this woman, though, is she does neither of these things. She stays, and she persists, as all of those with holy chutzpah do. She's heard that Jesus is in town. Her daughter is demon-possessed. She's tried everything, and nothing's worked, but she's confident that Jesus is the answer, and she's so confident that she moves to get closer to him. She barges into the place where Jesus is at, a place that she is not welcome, and she stands on the periphery, and she shouts from the margins, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Please help me, and Jesus says nothing, not even a word, but she won't stop shouting. 
And she won't give up like that persistent widow who prevailed against that unjust judge. She moves closer and she remains in the silence of God and she holds on, holds on to see what is behind the son of David's silence towards her, believing that she can prevail over the Lord's silence. She's in a staring contest with Jesus and she ain't going to blink first because she's up to the challenge. The disciples are not. The disciples grow restless, and they turn and recognize her and say to Jesus, send her away. Tell her to beat it, because she's just so annoying, and she's pestering us. And like all human beings, they cannot stand awkward silence. And let the record show that their desire for Jesus to speak to her is not to relieve the woman's burden, it's to relieve their own. And perhaps the woman sees right through the disciples' facade of kindness and does not react to them, but she stays in the silence of Jesus waiting for his answer. Only then does Jesus finally break the silence. At last, he has something to say, and honestly, it isn't very flattering. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Translated, I'm Israel's Messiah first and foremost, not yours. For many of us, it sounds like Jesus is being a bit of a racist here. Preferential treatment for the Jews over the Gentiles. If Jesus were around today, he might have been canceled. But what Jesus is actually doing is restating his mission, which is in accordance to God's plan. Because in the beginning, you may remember, God created all of humanity to live and fellowship and community and harmony with them. But ever since the fall, that relationship has been broken and humanity now lives in estrangement from him. And God has since been working to restore his relationship with humanity. And scripture says God started with the family, Abraham, which then became Israel. And through this family, through Israel, God would form a particular kind of people that would attract the nations to him. They'd be ambassadors of God, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And without leaving the world, but also being different from the world, they'd be like a city on a hill, and they'd attract all of humanity back to God. So redeem the people of Israel, then from Israel, God would redeem the world. So it makes sense in Jesus' mind that God's agenda for his Messiah would be to start with the Israelites first, then work his way outward to the rest of the world all in due time. So Jesus is saying it's just not the right time for the Gentiles yet. Many of us this morning would probably say that's not fair. (laughs) As Americans, we've been nursed on the American dream that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. But Jesus is saying here, equal yes but there still is a first and there's a second and there is a now and there is a later and you're not now you're later his plate is full with tending to the needs of Israel which which let me tell you is a lot but Jesus saying not right now again I don't know if we like this Jesus very much (laughs) but the woman won't leave (laughs) She can't take a hint, and instead, she moves from the perimeter, pushing through the crowds, and gets closer, falling at Jesus' feet, this time with one last plea, as she bears her soul, Lord, help me. You can hear it in her voice, can't you? The scene is evolving quickly, friends, and if the silence of Jesus before made you uncomfortable, brace yourself for this next part. Then Jesus again says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Jesus wasn't canceled before, he sure is now. 
This statement is so offensive that all the New Testament commentators and scholars rush in to rescue Jesus. And they tell us that there are many Greek words for dog, and the word that Jesus uses does not mean a dog that lives on the street. What Jesus means is more like a a house dog or a, a lap dog or a puppy dog. So she's not a mutt, she's more of a labradoodle. But however you slice it, a dog is a dog, whether you're pampered or not, and calling someone subhuman isn't really the nicest thing to say, huh? But Jesus is just saying the same thing before, just more cryptically. At best, it almost sounds like a parable. But at the end of the day, there's really no rescuing Jesus here, and perhaps we shouldn't try. Maybe Matthew wants us to sit in the discomfort and tension and unease, just like this woman when we read this story. Because the most remarkable part of the story for me is what comes next. Do you know what this woman does? She agrees. <laughs> yes, Lord. The woman's response to her word from the Lord, the answer to her prayers, is affirming everything Jesus has told her. She doesn't dispute it or deny any of it. She doesn't push back or wait for a reply that she was hoping for. She simply responds, You're right. That's true. And in doing so, she accepts the rationale for him ignoring her. She agrees with the reason for his silence. I think this woman understands and accepts a fundamental aspect about the grace of God that is so often softened or worse forgotten by so many evangelicals. None of us deserve Jesus' help. None of us are entitled to God's grace. Because she's effectively saying, you're right to pass on, Jesus of Nazareth. I have no claim over you. Can I speak a little candidly for a moment? Just 60 seconds. This convicts me, friends. Because I think many of us would have balked at what Jesus said instead of affirm it. We'd say, you can't talk to me that way. And I think it's because of how we grew up and how we came to know about Christ I think it's because we've told this story so many times that we've lost the plot. God was and is under no obligation to help us. I think the tendency is the further removed we are from our conversion or the the initial taste of God's grace, we lose the amazing part of it. And in turn, it becomes deserved grace or obligated grace And when we don't receive it, when God doesn't respond according to the way that we want him to, when God is silent, we feel slighted. Because somehow God owes us, right? We assume that Jesus is obligated to respond to every request and to heal everyone. Like a genie in a bottle or a divine vending machine, God exists to be used to help me through my problems and achieve what I desire. God is morally obligated and essentially required to always rescue me. But we have no right or claim over Jesus, right, friends? Jesus will and can and wants to help us. He's fully capable of helping us, but he doesn't have to. I think some of us need to remember that because our posture says otherwise. And the way we talk about God says otherwise. The way we think about God says otherwise. Some of us believe God owes us, and when he stubbornly doesn't cooperate the way we think God should, either God has abandoned us or is punishing us when that may not be the case at all. Maybe we've forgotten how God's grace works. 
That God's grace should not be taken for granted, that we didn't deserve it, yet God loves us anyway. Helmut Thielich says it this way, I make bold to say that even the most orthodox churchman will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is continually surprised that mercy has been shown him. Perhaps God has to be first jerked away from us complacent Western Christians like a rug from under our feet if we are to be reawakened to this surprise. This woman recognizes it. And she realizes that she does not deserve Jesus' attention. So she boldly says, yes, Lord, but wait for it, but. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Listen to what she's doing. That she admits that she does not have any rights over Jesus, but she presumes that she is allowed to at least munch on the scraps and the leftovers that may fall off the table her way. She doesn't care what he calls her. You can call me anything you want. You can keep ignoring me if you want. Just help my kid and the scraps will be just fine. I will take the crumbs. Have we stumbled into the great paradox of prayer, friends, that the Lord taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is essentially saying, yes, Lord, your will be done. We pray that God's will will be done, not our will be done. We want God to be free to do whatever God wants to do, which may or may not include us. And we beg and we plead for his mercy. However, at the end of the day, we are okay with whatever God wants to do. But we're told, friends, to boldly also pray, give us this day our daily bread. So even after praying for God's will to be done, we can come before that same God and petition him for things to sustain us. That somehow in God's will is our daily bread. That our needs are not forgotten by God, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you, right? That's what Jesus said. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, as long as the disciples are on earth, they should not be ashamed to pray for their bodily needs. He who created men on earth will keep and preserve their bodies. This, I think, is the great mystery of prayer, friends. That prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Prayer is laying hold of God's highest willingness and that's what this woman does this woman wholeheartedly says to Jesus your will be done yes Lord because she is fully confident that Jesus will put all things right that she surrenders to the will of Jesus knowing that doing so will end in the best outcome for her daughter even though it may be hidden, sometimes veiled in the hushed silence, and in spite of not deserving, she concedes to God's grace. And she trusts Jesus will see her broken and contrite heart and will not turn away. She has the courage and the bravery to rest at God's will, yet she has the boldness and the gumption to ask for her daily bread, even if it's just the crumbs. Mm. Jesus is stunned. And he says to her, woman, I just came from Jerusalem where I was talking with preachers and scholars and theologians and reformers and religious people and churchgoers for days. And I haven't seen what you got in any of them. Woman, great is your faith. No one among all of God's people, all of Israel, has that kind of faith, including in the, in the disciples, the ones closest to them. How amazing that this anonymous outsider shines unlike the insiders. 
So even though God has a program, he responds to true faith. And folks, we can assume he will always do that. We see that faith is unshakable confidence in Jesus, but faith is also tenacious. That her persistence, based on the faith in God, who can change things for the better, is rewarded because this woman won't let go. And in doing so, this Canaanite becomes an Israelite, one who wrestles with God and overcomes. The true people of Israel are the ones who will stay in the crucible of silence and not resolve silence with some packaged theology or a simple Bible verse or a prayer, but one who lives in the tension because the God they want and what they did. I think the Canaanite woman's story is not about what faith is like a definition. It's a prescription of what faith looks like in action. True, genuine faith isn't static, but it's dynamic. That faith is not a fixed collection of beliefs, but it's a state of being. That this woman is not content sitting at her home and praying and hoping Jesus stops by. That she goes out and she finds him. That she asks and seeks and knocks and that she persists that she is active, that she chases him down and she wouldn't let him go and that she participates. And Jesus happily responds to her, but not before some effort. Through his silence and his provocative engagement, he begins to draw something out of her. Jesus sees something in this woman that he wants to foster and grow. And in a way, Jesus wants to test to make sure her convictions are pure and genuine, unlike so many who come begging for Jesus for something. What if God, what if what God is looking for is just seriously participating and wrestling with him, friends, in the silence, in the confusing back and forth, and not flinching, but going all in? That to endure the crucible of silence requires tremendous courage and willingness to hang in there. That it won't be easy, but it can be life-giving. We can't manipulate God to talk. We can't force him to speak. We can't make God do something God doesn't want to do. And the only thing that we can do is patiently wait and endure the silence of God, ready for when God chooses to speak, trusting in the goodness of God and his will, but still earnestly asking for our daily bread. In his book, Hearing God, Dallas Willard wrestles with the paradox of communicating with God. He says, on one hand, we have a massive testimony to widespread faith in God's personal guiding communication with us, not just in scripture, but also in church history. But he says, on the other hand, we also find a pervasive and often painful uncertainty about how hearing God's voice actually works today. And in the end, he says, I believe we cannot abandon faith in our ability to hear from God. To do so would be to abandon the reality of a personal relationship with God, and we must not do that. Friends, we can't abandon that God will still speak to us today. And maybe we need to chew on and digest the idea that God doesn't always have to talk. In fact, he's quite comfortable being silent, far more comfortable than we are. Perhaps the difficulty is not interpreting divine silence as being the same as human silence. Because I think there's a difference, friends. Behind God's silence is a higher purpose. The silence of God is not the silence of indifference. It's the silence of higher thoughts. Quiet does not mean that God is far away. And just because God ain't saying anything doesn't mean that God isn't working. Just Just because God is silent doesn't mean that God is ignoring you. 
God being silent is not an indication of his absence, but I think it's a sign of his self-control. Because whether it was announcing a savior through the prophets, then being silent for hundreds of years until a child conceived under mysterious circumstances is born in Bethlehem, or whether it was in the garden where the father was silent as Jesus poured out his distress about bearing the cup prepared for him, or whether it was Jesus' silence before Pontius Pilate that resulted in his death warrant, or whether it was the Father and the Spirit being silent as the Son died on the cross. Have you ever thought about this, friends? That the voice from heaven that interrupted Jesus' baptism and Jesus' transfiguration is strangely silent on Good Friday. As the powers of darkness make a lot of noise that night in an effort to thwart God's plans, as the Son of God endured indescribable suffering and pain and agony on that being crucified on that cross, God had nothing to say. Even Jesus acknowledged his lack of speaking when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Somehow the Son experienced the silence of God in his hour of need. And while God may be silent, the forces of nature will not be kept quiet. If you remember, there were earthquakes and the splitting of rocks and darkness in the sky. But even then, God is still silent. And in the moments of deepest distress and grief, in the moments of hopelessness, in the darkest of times, like on Calvary, when we want more than anything to hear a word from God, in the background, unheard is the nearness of God. That God is still present with us in the suffering. That God is even suffering with us in the silence. Because God is still working. And despite the silence of God, Easter still happens. Again, Helmut Tielek calls this the great mystery of this silence. The very hour when God answered not a word of syllable was the hour of the great turning point when the veil of the temple was torn and God's heart was laid bare with all its wounds. Even when he was silent, God suffered with us. In his silence, he experienced the great fellowship of death and the depth with us. We live in the power of this Golgotha night of silence. Where should we be without the cross? I want to close by just reading this poem to you all. It was composed by an anonymous victim of the Holocaust, discovered etched on a wall of a concentration camp after the Second World War. I want to close with this poem. I believe in the sun, even when it's not shining. I believe in love, even when I feel it not. And I believe in God, even when he is silent.